Good morning, friends. I'm glad to see all of you this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel. It is a uh, smallish book about, oh, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through, maybe three-fifths of the way through your Bible. Go ahead and turn there, and that's where we're going to be today. We are in week two of our, um, our series, uh, Everyday Prophets, uh, exploring what is often called the Minor Prophets, or as the ancient church would call it, the Book of the Twelve is what they would call it. And before we dive into Joel, while you're finding it, loading it up on your uh, phone, whatever, uh, time for a pop quiz. Some people's blood pressure went right there. But time for a pop quiz. Not on the book of Joel. Um, does anybody know what this building is right here? Does anyone know what this building is? No, not the Louvre. It's close. It, it, that is a pyramid. Anyone? Anyone? Uh, yeah. No? What? What? It's not the Luxor? Rock and Carl for the win! Carl for the, yes, it is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nestled on the shores of Lake Erie in Cleveland, Ohio. It's where it's seven stories high. It's a tower with a glass pyramid erupting out of it. And it houses memorabilia from some of the greatest musical artists of all time, including, of course, the, uh, right, we'll have it right here on the screen, um, the Beatles, uh, like these are artifacts, and, and Elvis, um, Queen, I couldn't, Queen didn't have a great exhibit, but I really wanted it to, to put Queen up there. I'm a Queen fan. Um, things like Elvis's motorcycle are in here. The Beatles piano are displayed here. And going into these exhibits, what do you not expect to see when you're going? You don't expect to see these famous musicians actually playing live. <laughs> that would be weird. Maybe in the, in the future, in the land of holograms, that, that's a possibility. But I'm, with, with the Beatles, with Elvis, this is actually an impossible... They're no longer with us, most of the Beatles at least. Um, but what you can get when you come to this exhibit is you can hear their music playing, you can see parts of their story that aren't necessarily always in chronological order. They are um, sometimes put together in unique, um, compelling ways, strategically laid out in front of you for another kind of experience. You get to drawn into their life, into their legacy, into their art um, in a different kind of way than you would um, seeing them perform live. Um, we love this kind of thing. We whether it's uh, exhibits in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or the exhibit, they really are a kind of exhibit when you're in line for like a Disney, on Disney World or something. You've got these rooms that are strategically laid out in front of you. We're all familiar with exhibits and some exhibits are just awesome to go and visit, but some exhibits can actually have a different kind of effect on us, um, far beyond just like entertainment or information. This right here is um, the uh, Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, that has been converted into the National Civil Rights Museum. Uh, it's a cluster of buildings, including the actual motel itself. There's a circle right kind of in the middle of the screen. That is actually the, um, the spot where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, um, right there. And it's been converted into this exhibit showcasing the struggle of black Americans over the past century, over century after century, as they're struggling for equality and opportunity. Um, inside of the exhibit, you've got various things, including um, a replica of Rosa Parks' bus will actually be up here on the screen. Um, it's, it's there, and you can uh, actually take a seat 
on it. The, the, the real one's in Michigan. They restored it, and it's in um, the Henry Ford Museum. It's actually where it is. But there's a replica, and you can sit in this bus. It's, and it's not a, an exhibit just for entertainment. This is an exhibit. It's, a, it's curated collections of bits of history that's not trying to just merely preserve the past. Some exhibits arrange artifacts from the past to transform people in the present. That's what some exhibits do. Outside of the museum, you're, you're taking in, this is where Dr. King was shot. And as you're walking through the exhibit, you're just overwhelmed by the experience of so many of our brothers and sisters that have experienced so much heartache in our country. And you're climbing onto this bus and you're seeing like a a statue of gentle Mrs. Parks quietly resisting the brokenness of a sinful system that nobody was recognizing. And suddenly you find yourself not just thinking about the past, you find yourself like, goodness, it was so broken and so many people didn't realize it but you find yourself, those thoughts about the past may turn to the present. They may turn, like, and you may start thinking about the present, like, am I, am I listening to the voices of people who are different from me, who are around me right now? Is there brokenness around me right now in this society that I may not realize? Is there more that needs to be done? And you may start thinking about this way because somebody has arranged bits of the past strategically in a way that speaks into the present. Are you with me? We're with, okay. Now, the prophetic books, especially like the book of the 12 right here, they're some of the most difficult reading in the Bible. Has anyone, show of hands, you can be honest. I'll be honest first. Has anyone other than me opened up the Bible to these prophetic books and been like, what am I reading? Show of hands, anybody? Can we, can we get, yes, yes, it's, it's us. Um, we're like, you're wondering questions like, were these things like spoken in this order? Like what, what, or like from beginning to end, or like chronologically, did somebody just get up and, and talk these words? Or if not, how are things, how is this arranged? Um, we can't do a deep dive into really kind of any of those areas today, but hopefully the image of an exhibit helps um, because the prophetic books are exhibits. They, um, they showcase past words. It'll be right up here. The prophetic words are exhibits. They showcase past words that can tra- from the past that can transform our present. Is what the, these are not necessary. As we're reading these, there's, these are n- these words that begin the book of Joel or the book of Hosea or the book of Micah, they're not necessarily the first words that any of those prophets actually spoke, like in chronological order. Just like the Beatles piano right here or, or Elvis's motorcycle are not necessarily the first instrument or the first vehicle that they <laughs> learned to ride on or play. Um, all of these things, all of these words have been collected by people who were following the prophets and, and curated in a, in a particular way. They've been laid out strategically before us in a particular kind of way. And the goal of that arrangement is that people would come in, that we as the people of God would come in and that we would sit on the bus, that we would just sit 
in the words, that we would sit down in the middle of what did happen back then and listen to the way that the Spirit of God is speaking to us right now and wanting to transform us and the world right now. Are you with me? The, the prophets are exhibits. They're, um, w- when it's words put together, it's called anthologies. Uh, it's, they're anthologies. They are um, they're, they're greatest hits albums, if you, if you want. They weren't necessarily written in this order, but they've been put together in a particular order, um, collected by those around the prophets to give us an experience. Hopefully that's a helpful image as we dive into the book of Joel this week. Last week, Joe started us off wonderfully uh, talking about the book of Hosea. And if you'll remember from last week, when we walk into the exhibit called Hosea, you've got two things showcased for us primarily. You've got Hosea showcasing the absurd adultery (laughs) that is our posture toward God. We are adulterous. And the agonized allegiance that is God's posture towards us. He's it's like breaking his heart. But I'm with you. I am committed to you. How can I let you go, Ephraim? In, in, in his day, the prophet Hosea, he looked around and he saw like a society filled with like cruelty and violence and bloodshed. Does any of that sound familiar, by the way? Uh, <laughs> he saw people align. I know this is hard to imagine, but he saw people aligning themselves with powerful but corrupt political figures. Really, they would speak the name of Yahweh, but they wouldn't actually be obeying the, the word of Yahweh at all because they were doing this for protection from other sorts of forces in the world. I know it's hard to imagine. He saw idolatry and empty religion around him that did not make people love Yahweh more, God more, and did not make people love their neighbor more. Hosea likens it all to adultery. It's just like you're cheating. It's like a bride selling herself into sex slavery for other men. It's like, that's what this is like. It's gut-wrenching. And Hosea eventually warns the people, if you keep going down this path, if you keep living this way, God is going to remove his protection and he's going to allow his very own people to be conquered to be driven off into, into slavery that you've chosen, <laughs> into exile. It just breaks God's heart. But it's not too late, is what the book of Hosea says. It's a, you can still shuv, is the word in Hebrew. Shuv, you can turn, is what that means. You can turn from your destructive choices. You can shuv to God. You return to God, their great lover. The book of Hosea ends this way. It says, Turn, shuv, O Israel, to the, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with, your wor- um, take with you words and return to the Lord. What words? Well, say to him, pray to him, take away all of our iniquity. And then the promise is, I will heal all of their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has shoved. My anger, God's anger, has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily, and he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, these world-renowned trees. They're just beautiful and strong. His roots or his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon is a rich area known for perfume and stuff as well. They shall return. They shall shuv. They shall 
Return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So the book of Hosea is ending, what we, what we covered last week is ending with a promise. It's end, ending with optimism. This is the end of the exhibit in Hosea of what things can be. Things can be. We're leaving the exhibit of Hosea. We're walking through and like the vegetation is like growing. It's like green, it's getting greener and bigger and like the plants are like starting to come over the sidewalks and we're having to, and maybe there's like those misting fans that you know what I'm talking about that are like kind of blowing and it's like God is nourishing like that. It's like cooling and it's like dew, like cool water from heaven. Green shoots and leaves are like reaching around. There's blossoms and flowers and wheat and grain. It's breathtaking. And then we pass through a heavy curtain, a black curtain into the next exhibit and all the vegetation is just eaten. It's just all gone. We look around and it's like a, like a farm on a zombie movie or something. We're like, oh, the crops are like withered, stems are broken. Each, with each step, we hear the crunch, crunch, crunch of a broken world. That's what we hear. This is the way Joel begins in the book of the 12. The word of Yahweh, of the Lord, came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Joel begins by saying, all possibility has been devoured. It's all been achald, is what it is. It's been eaten, devoured. This is, so where Hosea began with adultery, Joel begins with infestation, is the, where Joel begins. Um, this is what a locust infestation looks like. Um, this was last year um, in Kenya. Um, there are parts of the world that still see this kind of like crazy thing. Um, you thought you had a bad 2020. Um, translations vary in verse four right here about the insects because it's just, if, if you have a translation other than the um, ESV that I used, you have different things that showed up in your translation of verse four. It's just a cluster of Hebrew synonyms for crawly things is what you've got there in verse four. It's like walking into a dilapidated house, like in the zombie movie, perhaps. We're walking to the farmhouse and we see like a disgusting like husk of a sofa over here. And it's like saying, well, the pests ate the fabric, the varmints ate the stuffing, the vermin ate the framing and the creepy crawlies ate what's left. <laughs> like it's, it's that kind of like, bump, 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 bump. it's just a bunch of nasty, it's just all been eaten. It's all devoured. Everything that could have been is gone. It's just been ahald. It's been eaten. All possibility is gone. That's what we are left with after all the heights of Hosea's possibility. Just turn, turn. And then we wander into the exhibit called Joel. And Joel is showcasing what it looks like when our hopes get devoured. Is what Joel is showcasing for us.
And every single one of us has experienced this at some point in our life, um, to varying degrees. We all experienced this last year, in the year 2020. Whatever it was that you were hoping for, for 2020 to be, whatever it was that you were anticipating. I talked to some people, and it was like events, or vacations, or uh, job opportunities, or opportunities for their children, and it just got gobbled up. We've been working so hard, and we had been so patient for it, and we'd planned so diligently, and then a swarm of 2020 just came buzzing in and like devoured the thing. Or maybe it was um, in other parts of our lives, maybe it's like a swarm of addiction that comes swarming in, or a swarm of medical tests that you just got the results from or a swarm of bills that it's just like how in the world or or in some parts of the world it's like a swarm of literal locusts that actually come in for for some people these are a lot of times it's first world problems that we're dealing with um here very often but more quickly than we could have imagined every step forward in our lives at times becomes the crunch 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 of a broken world And Joel's not talking just about like a bad harvest for like one family. Oh, you know, the Joneses over. Where's Joneses? The Joneses over there got eaten up or a bad year for just like one person. Uh, Verse six, he continues and he says, for a nation has come up against my land. That's what this is. He's like, the imagery is kind of blurring together. A nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and it has fangs of a lioness. So when Joel is talking about like a swarm of locusts, he might be talking, scholars go back and forth, he might be talking about like something, a real locust plague that he saw, um, just like some people still see it these days. But he's also talking in images and metaphors um, right here because he is watching the latest news, he's checking, he's reading the headlines, and he's thinking about a foreign invasion is what he's thinking. This is just, this locust swarm is just like a foreign army, not just gobbling up this year's crops, as devastating and dangerous as that is in in an agrarian society. But he's looking at like not just one farm going down, he's thinking about the threat of an entire civilization falling apart. It's not just like my family I'm worried about. It's my entire nation that I'm worried about. Like a foreign army, depending on when Joel was written, it's either like Assyria or Babylon. It's, it's somewhat, it's, we don't exactly know, but depending on when this is written, he's looking around and he's saying, verse 10, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the, the grain is destroyed. The, the wine dries up. The oil languishes. Verse 12, the vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, apple, all the trees of the field are what? Dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of men. We keep walking through Joel's exhibit. <laughs> and it's like the misting fans are gone and it's like the temperature is like rising and, the, and it's like sands have started blowing in a little bit. What began is like a zombie farm. It's like becoming like zombie farm combined with like desert dunes. Like a devouring army has advanced and everything is drying up, including gladness. Oh, 
Joel has a recurring phrase for this that he uses in his book about five or six times. It's called the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. It's the day, it's the moment um, when God will allow human sin to bear its fruit. Allow sin to actually bloom and bear its fruit and its fruit is death. Its fruit is exile. Its fruit is consequences in the world. And by the time we get to the beginning of chapter two, it's no longer just like locusts gobbling up. Verse three of chapter two says, the fire ahals, the fire devours before them. So it's an army, it's locusts, now it's fire hauling. The land, um, behind them, flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. And what's behind them? Behind them, a desolate wilderness. Nothing escapes. That's powerful imagery, right? At this point, the exhibit, like, this is like a theme park exhibit at this point. It's like, you know, the fire burning around us with the dunes and the zombie farm. And we've, we've gone from the, from the possibility and optimism at hope at the end of Hosea to like hope devoured, gladness drying up, and wildfire consuming the freaking Garden of Eden. Like that's where we are. And so the exhibit of Joel seems to be trying to provoke a question within us. Where do we shove? Where where do we turn when hope is lost? That's what Joel seems to be asking us. Where do we turn when the Garden of Eden, all the promise, all the optimism has just like gone. It's left the building. And the answer that he gives is near the heart of what Joel is trying to, where he's trying to take us. He says, Verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, shuv, shuv, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. I don't want this to be an external thing of like what you think it should look like. I just want your heart to break like mine has been agonizing over the adultery that you have been putting me through. Shuv, return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He stops the sin from blooming into death. He can stop that. Who knows whether he will not shuv, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Joel remembers the ancient mysterious identity of God that was revealed to Moses back there in Exodus 34, that Yahweh, Yahweh is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he says, I will remember what God is like on the zombie farm with the dunes coming in and the fire burning, even in the wasteland, even in the catastrophe. I will remember what 
God is like, even though my gladness is dried up right now, even though my choices, it's my choices that have landed me right here, I will remember that God is advancing too, and God is not devouring. God is giving. God is leaving prosperity and blessing behind him. I always make Joe nervous about these candles right here that I'm going to knock them over. I felt it right there in that moment. God's a, God's a different kind of fire is what Joel is saying. Uh, he burns up the wasteland. He burns up the wasteland. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he leaves blessing behind him. And so verse 12, Joel's like, yet even now, like right now, (laughs) that's the voice of the prophet speaking to us right here, even now, like right now, you have a choice. I have a choice. I have say in my life. And what I ground myself in, I will shove. I will turn. I will repent. I will turn toward God. Joel is beckoning his hearers. Like in the, in the Iron Age when he was writing, all the way up to like the year 2021, to shove, to turn ourselves to God, and he will fill our souls. It won't just be misting fan. It'll be like a garden hose, like just water. So where do we turn is what Joel's wanting us to ask. And we, we turn to God. I know that's like the basic thing in the world, but like the, the word shuv, it literally just, a lot of times it gets translated repent, um, but it's literally just turn. And so when we're turning, we're turning away from something. That's what repent makes us think of. But you're also turning towards something is what you're doing. There's plenty to turn away from. Total, like I feel that in my own life. We frequently need to turn from like destructive patterns in our lives. Like I've fallen into this pattern and it is destroying me. We frequently need to turn away from the idolatry of self. Like the notion that we have to protect ourselves or that we have to provide for ourselves or the false belief that we, that when we cannot see hope, when I with my eyes or my mind can't see hope, that means that all hope is lost. There is no hope. We have to turn from the idolatry of self and we have to turn towards something. We have to turn, what we're turning towards is the God who always wants the absolute best for us. Some of you need to hear that about God this morning. God wants the best for you. (laughs) Our youngest daughter, Daisy, um, she's almost four and she doesn't like to eat. Uh, and I'm not so, let me clarify. I'm, I'm not saying she doesn't like to try new foods, which she doesn't. <laughs> what I'm saying is she doesn't like to eat the limited number of foods that she already knows. <laughs> She's already, she did it last night. She will be grumpy and her, her stomach will be hurting. She will tell us that it is. She will be obviously ill-tempered, uncomfortable, and she will sit at the table with her head firmly planted on her arm. And our default mode as parents is like encouraging and coaxing and like, come on, why don't we eat? But eventually, eventually over the hours, 
and weeks, she eventually starts to get in trouble over this um, because she is not just not liking food. She's being rebellious on some little level. She's refusing to eat. And we've gone through stretches where we try to like let her self-regulate this. I'm like forcing, I've tried forcing food into her mouth. Does not work. Um, and we do, it does for some kids. And it did once with her with tots. The, 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 I was like, she's got to try a, uh, like a tater tot. She, and she loves them now. It's like one of her favorite foods. But, but like during these stretches where we're like, um, we don't want to give her a complex about all of this. And it's hard. Um, but so we will sometimes let her try to self-regulate. But we inevitably like, during those stretches, we've watched her like get thinner and thinner. And she's already got like, like this muscle thing going on in her body um, that some of you know about. And, and it's been like a really hard line to walk on how do you, and thankfully at this point at almost four, she's getting old enough that while her head is down, I can gently call her name and she will shove her ear towards me. And I'll tell her, Papa is not trying to be mean. I'm, I don't want you in trouble. I want you to be big and strong. I want you to laugh and run and jump and play. And so I need you to eat. I need you to listen and obey. That's what I need you to do. And it struck me the other day, that this is a picture of God <laughs> with us. That at se- like this is the whole point of Joel's exhibit. He wants us in our exile, in our suffering. He wants us to shove just an ear, even if we're not believing it fully right now. Just shove just a little bit. Turn and live <laughs> is what Joel's wanting. We, we should say it this way. We are always turning toward the God who desires better life for us. That's why you're turning away from things as a Christian. It's not because God's a killjoy. It's actually because God wants better joy for you. He wants you more alive. Listen to the way that Joel talks about the future as we turn towards God. Verse 24 of chapter 2, he says, The threshing floors shall be full of wheat. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming, all the critters, the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you, you shall ahal ahal. It's twice. It's the first time you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh, of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The future, according to Joel, is that you will get to eat. That's the future, according to Joel. The creepy crawlies were devouring, and then the fire was devouring. But as we turn towards God, we get to eat. It's our turn. We get to feast, to to eat in plenty and be satisfied. And Joel gets really specific why we turn and feast and get to be satisfied. He says in verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit 
on all flesh. And it goes on to talk about dreams and wonders. Verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. That's like eclipse language. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and it shall come to pass on that day that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be, what? Saved. Suddenly the exhibit that we've been walking through, it takes like the surprising like turn and we go through the curtain and now we're like in a chamber brimming with a great cloud of witnesses surrounded, surrounding the living person of Jesus because the church has been convinced for, utter, for like 2,000 years and proclaiming it that the day of the Lord is something that happened with Jesus. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, in the wandering wasteland, in the dunes, eating what? Eating locusts. I love that detail. He, it's like the devourer that's been wrecking you for, it's starting to get eaten. It's starting to get devoured. And he's saying, get ready. Get ready. The day of the Lord is coming. The Lord himself is going to shoot. He's going to return toward us. He's going to come to us. And Jesus went around promising to those in the worst of circumstances who felt withered and wasting away that if they would trust him, to a woman by the well, he says, you will have living water that will satisfy you because what you're doing right now isn't working. And so will you just come to me? And we're told that this same Jesus, like he was crucified and the sun turned to darkness on that day as God himself with parched throat and blistered lips endured our withering thirst that we walk around with. He cries out on the cross, I thirst, is what he says. And then Jesus emerges on the other side of it all, on the far side of the day of the Lord, and says, I'm going to fill you. If you'll trust me, I will fill you with my very life, my very spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, as Joe mentioned, the, the, the early church quotes this passage from Joel's and says, this is what's happening when we talk about Jesus and begin to trust him no matter where you are, no matter how you got there. When we hear the story of Jesus and start trusting him, our wasteland gets eaten away slowly and God leaves blessing in our lives behind it. God pours out his very life over us and into us and transforms us into a new creation. We should say it this way as we're coming to the table. Repentance is the painful turning toward lasting joy. Repentance is a good word. It's a joy word is what repentance is. Becoming joyful though is a painful process. It's not an overnight deal. It's like a painful turning. It's so painful to admit that we're wrong. It's so painful to admit that we're living in death. It's so painful to say, I know Jesus in so many ways, and yet this is a blind spot to me. That some pe- and I want to listen to somebody else. But all of that pain is always for the sake of joy, because that's who our God is. And so I invite you to... Um, Let's stand together right now as we're preparing to come to the table. And the band, you guys can come. 
this morning you are invited to shuv, is what the exhibit of Joel is inviting you, away from death and toward joy. And for some of you, it's like super easy. It's like a repenting of sin. It's like this place where the door is wide open and like the varmints and the vermin are like running, running in and wandering in and just like eating the couch of your soul alive. And so like speak to the spirit right now and say, I want to shoof. I want to turn from that sin. For a great number of us uh, in the room, we have got to, um, every four years, the idolatry of politics climaxes. And, um, and it's good to be like involved and informed, but uh, many of us have become obsessive and obsessing. And we've been watching like the talking heads on the news and we've been obsessed with a particular political candidate, and we've been living under the lie that they are what's going to make all things right. And today, the real king wants us to stop obsessing over the White House and start obsessing over how we can love every single person around us. Maybe this morning, um, for some of us, you're inv- the Spirit is inviting you to repent, to turn from despair, from the false belief that the locusts and the, the fire and the, the armies are all there is in the world. I have good news for you if you are here in this place and full of despair. There is life on the other side of sin and death. There's resurrection on the far side of the day of the Lord. Jesus is raised from the dead and he claims you. He claims you as his family. And what the locusts have eaten is going to be restored. You are going to feast and you're gonna be satisfied. Your best days are ahead of you. You're invited to remember who God is. God is like Jesus. Jesus, help us recognize that you are strong and you're kind and you're good and you're giving. And though it be painful for us, help us turn towards joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.